Alrighty, so tonight the topic is linguistic fuckery. And uh, I use that phrase to basically to demonstrate how language is being used um, in all facets of our society, really beyond our society, but all over the world right now. Um, it's, it's a form of, it, the, it's, there's a rhetoric, there's a, uh, there's a method in this language that is being used to have people get to a state of mind where they accept totalitarianism. And, and not only is it, it, it manipulates in many ways. So we'll talk about how the language is used, what, what the characteristics of that language are, and how to recognize it, how it manipulates, why people are susceptible to it. Um, because there is a state of mind that makes people especially susceptible to this manipulation through language and what you can do to not be susceptible to it and how you can communicate with people such that you're not perpetuating it and that so that you can also uh, wake people up, you know, from the comatose zombification that has occurred through their manipulation by language. Okay. So, so uh, again, this, I, I would say this conversation would center around critical theories because that's the, that's the cudgel, that's the club being used by neo-Marxism, wokeness to, to, not, I don't know if prepare is the right word, but to, to have people accept this specific brand of totalitarianism. And so there's all kinds of phrases, right, that are flying around and there's, and there's a method that's being utilized as well, okay? So, you know, we, we've heard phrases like privilege and diversity and equity and inclusion and, you know, uh, marginalized, right? So there, there's all these phrases, okay? They're just kind of are in the in our linguistic sphere of influence now, and it's in media, and it's in uh, education uh, at all levels, not just the universities anymore, but you're seeing it even in elementary school. And one of the methods, we'll start with a method that's used in language that is, in, again, intentionally designed to manipulate. Um, so I have a neighbor, well, I have a couple of neighbors, but one of my neighbors has a sign on their front lawn. Sure, you guys have seen these signs. And it says, you know, it says, love is love. Okay, tautology, it's kind of obvious. It's, I, I don't know, I don't even know what to say to that. Uh, it, it, it's the implication, right? That really is, is what's significant here. So it says, love is love. It says, science is real. It says people aren't illegal. It says, uh, oh, what's one of the other phrases on there? Uh, uh, science is real. 
Oh, I forget. There's, there's a couple other really good ones on there. <laughs> I'm forgetting the sign right now. But what's the implication here? The implication is that, for one, they're advertising that they are woke, okay? That they are, they have bought into an ideology. Oh, it says Black Lives Matter is one of them. Um, these are statements, right, that nobody disagrees with. Right? At least no sane person disagrees with, right? Like, well, and I mean, I don't know whether you can agree or disagree with a tautology like love is love. Um, but like, yeah, people aren't illegal, but people do illegal things, right? So the implication there is that, well, if you don't believe in my ideology, well, then you believe people are illegal and you don't believe love is love and you don't believe people are equal and, and see, this is, the, this is one of the methods that is used in language that like you'll see like an AOC, right? She'll go out and she'll say something like people, uh, people should be treated fairly. Um, people should be treated equally. And, you know, she's making obvious statements that nobody disagrees with, right? Like, yeah, we all think and believe and hold as a value that people should be treated fairly, that people should be treated equally. And then <laughs> she'll go into her ideology and start regurgitating her ideology. And the implication is, if you don't agree with my ideology, my methods of approaching equality or addressing equality, right? which she's really not talking about equality because the word that really starts to come up is equity, right? And then inclusion and diversity. And these words from their ideology don't mean at all what you would think these words are supposed to mean, right? Now, like, Brandon, let me ask you a question real quick. Um, uh -huh. it, I just looked up the sign and there's a couple of different versions, but there's one that says uh, Black Lives Matter, um, no human is illegal. Love is love. Women's rights are human's rights. Science is real. And water <laughs> is life. And injustice everywhere, anywhere, is a threat to justice everywhere. Now, it seems right. like, to me, those are like the the principal points of of an ideology. So any one no, of those no, is no, like an entry no. point. Well, here, no, here's the point. None right. of those are the points of an ideology. See, what those are, are those are phrases that nobody disagrees with, right? What, I mean, yeah, water is life, okay. But are there anti-water people all of a sudden? I don't even know those people. Who the fuck is anti-water? You know, no human is illegal. Okay, yeah, I, I don't think anyone would disagree with that. However, there are humans who do illegal things, <laughs> right? So the implication there is that like, like let's break down that one statement. No human is illegal. Right. And nobody has ever made the claim that any human is illegal. But the implication is that because there are people who take a position that we should prevent as a nation illegal immigration, which is a thing. <laughs> there is legal immigration and there is illegal immigration. Okay. Now, even in, and here's where I say that the, the ideology is also defective on the right, especially the far right, because people on the far right 
are against immigration. Okay. Period. They have a very nationalistic, like we need to like, just lock everyone out, not let anyone in. And that is not what has made our country so great. The fact that we have integrated all the cultures of the world into our society is what makes us so great. However, there needs to be a tension there. There needs to be a check and a balance there. You can't just let anyone and everyone in all at once. It would completely collapse your society. So, but the implication is if you don't, if you don't agree with me, which is that we should just let everyone in, everyone in, well, then you believe humans are illegal, which is ludicrous, right? It's, which it's is what acid. some people have actually said. Like, how many illegals you got trapped down there in South End of Texas? <laughs> like, right. they, they use that as a slang word. So it's almost as if, because I, I subscribe to this one side of this ideology war, when I say no human is illegal, I'm directly choosing a side and taking conflict against the other side. So that's what I'm right. saying. The linguistic fuckery that's going on here is using a term that everyone, that's basically neutral, that no one's arguing about. Like nobody believes right. anybody's actually illegal, but it's now loaded and become like a trigger word or a source of uh, identification even. Well, no, it's become a virtue. This is, right. you know, you've right. heard that right. term virtue signaling, right? So what is my neighbor doing? He's virtue signaling. He's, he's showing the world what a great person he is because he believes what everyone else believes. You know, like it's ridiculous. It's patently absurd, but what he's, but there, there is the implication there that people who don't share his ideology don't believe in those things. <laughs> and the water right. is life. Like there's an, uh, there are people that. opposed to those things. Right. Exactly. You oppose my ideology. You oppose my preamble right and like i said this is the this is a tactic this is a method used where it's like i'm gonna spit out a bunch of things that nobody really disagrees with but the implication is that what i follow it with if you disagree with that then you disagree with my preamble which was just a bunch of empty platitudes right <laughs> like everyone should be treated equal and if you don't go along with my five trillion dollar plan to you know, completely reshape our nation. And, and again, not, she's not an economist. She is in no way fucking qualified. In fact, if you look at her, plan, her plans, they're fucking ludicrous. There is no way they will achieve the results she claims they will achieve. But to disagree with her plan is to now oppose equality, is to now oppose that what she preambled with, what she started off with, right? Which nobody's in disagreement with. And so again, this is a tactic, right? That I stand for these things <laughs> that nobody stands against, but the implication being that if you oppose my ideology, if you oppose my approach and my solutions to these things, right? You can't have a different opinion here. Having a different opinion equates to you not agreeing with these tenets, right? These very simple uh, platitudes. So, so that's the linguistic one fuckery that's going on here is by 
saying things that are completely not in disagreement, but right. using it's, them it's a as a way equivalence. to what enroll or to. No, no, it's, it's again, it's, well, they're drawing a false equivalency there. Okay. So here's how, here's one of the ways people get enrolled to use your word in their conversation is the virtue, right? There's a, there's a false sense of virtue that if I agree and support and regurgitate her ideology or her ideological approach to, as a solution to these problems, assuming they are problems, then I hold these virtues. You see, there's a false equivalency there. All people should be treated fairly. So the... Right. You say that and then you follow it up with, so we need to take all the shit from white people and give it to brown people. Uh, okay. <laughs> like, doesn't sound fair. And see, and this is where reason, rationale, we'll, we'll get into how they've uh, undermined reason completely. Reason, logic, empiricism, they're against all that. Because again, it's a, there's, a, there's, there's a philosophy at work here. And it's not by accident, and it's not just mere stupidity. Now, AOC may very so, well be stupid. I'm not saying she's not. She may <laughs> be, because I don't believe she's a mastermind of anything. I don't think she can mastermind a fucking ham sandwich. But the, so the, let's uh, let's let's define the the critical um, the critical theory that we were talking about earlier, and how you actually we're able to dissect it down to its core elements that we can overlay it and look at things through that lens. All right, say that again. Can we go to, uh, can we explain a little bit about what critical theory is and those three elements that you brought up earlier so that we can kind of better understand what we're talking about here? Because Yes, absolutely. Because I also want to be able, people to be able to discern that this isn't a phenomenon strictly of, of the far left. That exactly. This, this methodology um, of manipulation through language um, by way of critical theorists or the methodology of critical theory is being done everywhere. Like I, I, I broke it down earlier about Alex Jones. Alex Jones, clear cut, is a critical theorist. And here's why. Okay, so what makes... Critical theory, critical theory. Now, some of you may be familiar with critical, some of the critical theories. There's critical race theory. There's critical queer theory. There's critical gender theory. There's even critical law or critical legal theory, which actually goes back over 100 years at this point. That's where it first infiltrated our systems was our legal system, okay? And it's bringing this, it's really born out of uh, Marx's conflict theory. Okay. They've just changed it and shifted it. And like I said, it's become a tool. The critical theories are now a tool of neo-Marxism and postmodernism or wokeness in, in order to destroy culture, destroy history, destroy the fabric of your society so that you can implement totalitarianism. Okay. That's its purpose is to break down. So what makes, what, what are the common elements that exist in all critical theories? Aspect one, they all sell you a dream. Okay. So 
for instance, with critical race theory, what, what's the dream that they're selling? Equality. Now, it's really not equality, it's equity. They're, they're promising you equal outcome. They're like, look, everyone's gonna be rich, which again, doesn't work, will, can never work, or everyone's gonna have all the same shit. Everyone's gonna be the same, right? Everyone's gonna have the same things. Everyone's gonna have the same stuff. Everyone's gonna have the same kind of life and the same luxuries, and th this is equity, okay? And so that's the, that's the sunshine, right? That's the promise. That's the pie in the sky, okay? So there's the dream. They're selling you a dream. And, it, and then if I bring, well, I'll bring Alex Jones into it after I've defined the three elements. Um, part two of any critical theory is the problemization, okay? You create and create, not only do you critique and identify only the problems that you identify as being what is preventing the dream, okay? So for instance, in critical race theory, they're saying, well, we, you know, we have unequal outcomes in some aspect of our society. What do we blame that on? It's systemic racism. Can you point to and identify systemic racism? No, that's the point, okay? This problemization is creating victims, it's creating problems. It's a purely a critique, okay? And the third element of all critical theories is no solution because it's amorphous. When you problemize it, it's an amorphous problemization that cannot be fixed because you can't actually point to an actual problem. You can only point to something amorphous. And so it just becomes a whirlwind of complaining and victimization well, and what happens is the solution is tear it all down burn it all down exactly you know exactly and then we'll see where yeah. we're at and then, yeah no no plan no here's what we got to do which is what you see in like really now there's a critical there's a critical policing theory right that we just need to abolish police Right. And really, that is also they want to abolish prisons. OK, so they're like abolish police, abolish pr prisons. It's problematic. It's systemically racist, blah, 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 blah. They're, all they do is critique, critique, critique. They're not they would never bring up any of the positive elements of it. Right. That's not the purpose of it, because the purpose is just tear it down. Well, what do we do instead? We're not worried about that. <laughs> we're not worried about what we're going to do about it. There is no remedy. There is no solution. The theory goes like, and now again, remember, these are just tools of neo-Marxism. And this is how Marxism works. There is no plan in Marxism. The plan is tear everything down, put the state in charge, and a utopia will just magically fucking appear out of nowhere. That's Marxism, okay? It's like a seven-year-old's approach to economics. That's Marxism, Okay. So, so this is that, something that I've ran into a bunch around probably in the last month or so. And just talking with people that are, are really supporters of, of some of these things. And right. I always get down to the question of, okay, once it's all burned to the ground, once we have no police, once we have no, you know, you know, corrupt or white supremacy or um, whatever, once everything's equal and we burn everything to the ground, then what are we going to rebuild? What are we going to do moving forward 
so that we don't end up with the same problem or that we end up better than when we left, you know, when we started engaging with this problem, how do we improve? How do we grow? How do we move past all of this? And right. not a single person has been able to give me any type of answer to that. They're, they're yeah, because there is well, articulated plans. in charge, or we can have actual like economics deal with our economics and we can, there's all of these ideas of who to put where, but there is no, oh, well, we need to build a system that functions like this or that motivates this or that there's no solution. No, because in reality, now it's not that they don't have a, a plan. They have the, what, what I'll call as a framework. It, it's not a clear cut plan, but their idea is, and again, this is Marxism, right? Neo-Marxism is, well, we'll put all the fucking professors in charge, okay? All the people who are pushing this to your kids in universities, they should be in charge because they're smart people and they're smarter than all of you. And that even though they haven't in a hundred years come up with a clear cut plan, the plan is just put us in charge. That's their fucking plan. And that's why you have these critical theorists flooding into not only academia now, they are infiltrating every aspect of our culture. They're in every corporation. That's why Coca-Cola commercials are all woke as fuck. They're in the NFL. They're in the NBA. It's everywhere. The critical theorists have infiltrated every aspect of our culture. And their plan is, as soon as we tear everything down, we're going to be in charge. And we're going to figure it out. <laughs> Again, in 100 years, they haven't well, figured it out yet. They haven't come up with a clear plan in over 100 years for, for this communist utopia. But they're pretty <laughs> sure that if you just put them in charge, it's all going to work out. Well, I got to tell you, man, some of it sounds pretty appealing, like everybody having fair, you know, equal opportunities, no racism, no, you know, you know, unfairness or whatever. Some of that feels pretty good. And it's hitting on some of those emotional points. I could see not being very like to take some of your distinctions you were talking about. If I wasn't able to see past the pie in the sky, the dream of like, oh, this utopia where everybody is just, there's, everything's fair, then I wouldn't be able to see the shortcomings or that there was no actual path to get there. Just like, okay, right. well, if everything's going to be fair, but first we need to defund the police. I'm like, well, for me, because I, I think through stuff, I'm like, <laughs> how does that get us to the goal? But somebody else may be like, oh, uh, yeah, I mean, I still want the pie in the sky, so let's do it. I don't know why we're doing it, but let's do it. And so I think it's, I don't really think it's the, the critical theorists that are infiltrating, but the theories themselves, the feel goodness of it, the PC-ness of it is so easy to adhere to because like the sign, you know, Black Lives Matter, like no one's going to argue with that. Like, yeah, of, of course they do. And, and so I should probably join your movement since I believe the same thing you do. And so it's just, it just, it's like a downhill. It's really easy to, fall into it and to start regurgitating this stuff because it's stuff that no one's arguing about. It's like, of course right. I believe and, that and I should be actually, defunding the police too. And, and actually we'll get into why people are susceptible to that because there is okay. something there it, 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 and it goes along right with what you're saying that people fall into it, but there's, and like you said, you think it through, but what has people just fall into it without thinking it through? 
without right. like, okay, well, what's your plan after that? <laughs> right? like, there's a, like, it's, it's people fall into it unquestioningly. And that's where this is, why this is such an insidious method at work here. And, and, and like and we again, said, this is, this is not just political stuff. Like you go to a car dealership and you're the guy selling you like, you know, driving around a convertible red hot rod Porsche or something on Sundays with the hair in your wind and your lady in your arm. And you're like, Oh my God, I want that dream. How much is the Porsche? This is the only way I can get to my dream. And there's no logical thought then of if I have the Porsche and I spend all this money, what could go wrong? The dream's next. Like there's, <laughs> there's right, a bit right. of a disconnect and, going and, on. And again, so this isn't just, there's this not isn't a, just there's political, not a, what I'm saying, is it's, well, it's no, no, permeates it's all aspects of, of our societies right now. Yeah, but there's not a direct correlation there in that okay. the car salesman isn't going to problematize what's in the way of your dream and then get you upset about it. And say we need to tear know, down this it. thing that's, that's between you and the Porsche. You know what I mean? Like, like well, yeah, this hunk of junk you're driving that doesn't fit your personality. Aren't you a lion? You're not a sheep, are you? <laughs> I mean, there's like that type like, of conversation it, that goes on all the time. Right. It, it could go there. I just want to say that that's not a direct correlation. I want. I don't want to confuse or okay. muddle what we're talking about here, um, because there there's a very deliberate, like a salesman. He's not well. Yeah, I, I can't even say that. I guess, gosh, you've really painted me into a corner with the salesman. Um, <laughs> we could use a different because, example. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I was going to say, you know, there's no underhanded. Well, yeah, most salesmen, there is some kind of underhanded something going on, um, especially if they're selling you something that they know is inferior to how they're talking about. It, right. Um, but let's, right, let's but move out. got a bad back timing belt. They know it's going to blow up or something. Right. right yeah. They know it's, they know it's a piece of shit and they're just talking and they're just telling you about the dream so that somebody else mm -hmm. can service the nightmare. Um, so <laughs> that was a good analogy. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, and that's kind of the, this methodology, that's kind of where this whole ideology is heading is that we're going to, they, the language is being used to push and to manipulate. And like I said, I, I've given you the three elements and those three elements, like I talked about earlier, are present in everywhere. This isn't a phenomenon of the left. This is a phenomenon that you see on the right. I, I've, if you break down anything and everything Alex Jones has ever said, it, it fits perfectly into this model. It's, he's a critical theorist in that he... He's selling the dream, right? Remember his website back years ago? I don't know what it is anymore, but used to be prison planet, right? So what he's problematized, he's saying everyone's a prisoner, right? Everyone's enslaved, right? Well, what's the dream he's selling? Well, freedom, freedom, liberty, right? This, this is the dream, okay? And then, but he just sticks in the whirlwind of the problemization. Right. There was, I've never in, in the, in anything I've ever heard come from him heard about what specifically are, do we need to change and what specifically are we going to do about it? Can we do about it? You know, so at, at, at the very least it's, it's mere fear mongering, but at the worst it's, it's critical theory at work. 
you know, and it's deliberately, and, and I'm okay. I don't want to say deliberately because I don't want to say that he's even consciously aware of this because we see this in all aspects of society and culture of the same method of language being used to manipulate. Okay. So it's, I don't think, I, I don't think he's necessarily a bad guy. I don't know whether he is or not. Um, I don't, I, I can't say for certain whether or not he has good or bad intentions. I'm just saying the way that he approaches everything is as a critical theorist, which all that can lead to is a tearing down with nothing to replace it with, which if this were deliberate, I would say, okay, this is a concerted effort being played out on all parts of, of the spectrum. And so that we've, we were having all people in all ideologies that they've bought into working towards the same goal, whether they realize it or not, they all think they're against each other, but they're actually working towards the same thing, which is a complete destruction of the system. Right. Um, which again, not that the system, if we could call the system, the system, not that the system is good or bad, but it's destroying the culture that will have extraordinarily, <laughs> at the least, complicated results, if not devastating results on us, on our families, on our society, right? So there's a, this is an underhanded way of undermining and eroding culture is using these methods, this language, Okay. And like I said there, so you also have to be aware. So we're, we're um, I'll get into what makes you susceptible to it, but I also want to talk about like the people who do, because there, there's actually a way that they justify this. Okay. But it's based in their ideology. And so when you understand the ideology, which most people don't, Okay. All the people that kind of just go along with this wokeness shit, they don't know any of the ideology, okay? But there's a rationale within the ideology. And, you know, even though they say science is real, they, science for them is a slogan. There is at work what I'll call critical science theory where they're taking these same elements. Remember I said, if you can identify these elements and specifically with the critical theories, one of the essential elements in creating conflict is creating uh, something to conflict with. So they, right now with, with critical race theories, with critical queer theory, critical gender theory, the, the, there's the oppressive, the oppressor and the oppressed, all being played out, all being identified within these theories so that there, we can create conflict, okay? So that's one, of, that's one of the main tools used in this language is, is this conflict. Now, so there, what you're seeing, I don't know how many of you have seen in the news and things like that where they're starting to call things like science, uh, a form of white supremacy. <laughs> They're calling mathematics 
a form of white supremacy. So again, they're, they're bringing conflict into science. They're bringing conflict into mathematics. And there, there's now you're seeing uh, academics. I, I don't know whether I can call people who are actually in academia, uh, at, let, let's say as a professor of biology, a biologist, because they're not, they just teach. And these people are so disconnected from the real world that you have academic biologists claiming that there is no biological difference or there is no difference besides sociological differences between men and women. This is a fucking biologist, okay? Meaning this biologist cannot identify a vagina or a penis, clearly. So there's something seriously wrong that this is now infiltrated, what we call science. So when you hear them claim that they, that they're, <laughs> that they follow the science, right? It isn't science. Science is a method, right? Science is a method. Science is something that is, there's empirical elements to it. There's logical elements to it. There's a method to establishing your theories and your, and your conclusions and the process of experimentation. Like science is a method, but what they- well, Just to, have just to quickly add to that, Brandon. That supports their <laughs> agenda, their ideology. And it's not science at all. It's a slogan. Science, science necessitates scrutiny and any good scientist right. knows that you come up with a theory and you test it. And if it works, you put it out there into the community and it gets peer reviewed and retested and over and over and over. And it has to endure a certain amount of scrutiny in order for it to be accepted as a working theory within the right. scientific community. And what we're right. seeing now is that this is the science, this, this doctor said so, we believe our doctors, not your doctors, the scrutiny has disappeared. That's not yeah, part of no what they're calling science. And no, so it can't actually be yeah. labeled as science. No, and it's not. And again, so, so what's the process they use to justify this within their own ideology is that they don't believe, okay? And so this comes right out of postmodernism. They don't believe in reason. They don't believe you can be rational or reasonable. Like this is why identity politics plays such a big part within their theories, okay? And why they use phrases like lived experience, right? See, and they use terms like my truth, right? These are, these are nonsensical phrases that mean nothing but allow them to justify their position that there is no objective facts or truth, that all meta narratives are uh, meaningless, and, and they consider science a meta narrative. Okay, so science, and that's why they can call it racist, right? They go, well, well, that's just that's just white supremacy. That's all science is, even though you know we've used science to produce some pretty miraculous things. So it's it, the method itself is you know, it's pretty well proven. <laughs> We've done some amazing things with science. So to just discount it wholly because you believe their ideology 
is that there is no rationale that each individual based on their identity. Okay. This is why identity politics is such an important aspect of their theories that your identity is what determines reality. Okay. Meaning science may say you're a man, but if you feel you're a woman, well then you're a woman. Fact. <laughs> That's a fact in their world. Okay. So they, they completely discount any form of empiricism, any, any scientific methodology, this does not work within their theories. Okay. This, this is against, goes against their philosophy. Okay. Which is really adopts and, and, and embraces this kind of uh, absolute relativism, you know, where there is absolutely no objective anything. Everything is subjective and everything is, and because of that, the only thing they believe in is that everything is about power. Okay. This is their theories. This is neo-Marxism. This is postmodernism. This is wokeness. Everything is about power. That's it. That is the extent of their reality. And so, Over, right. what's that? Uh, specifically power over something, not power with yeah. something like we talk about. No, 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 no. That's why they have, that's why everything's broken like down. Like tyrannical into, control. Well, yeah. Well, that's why it's, and I don't know if necessarily what I want to call it tyrannical control, but the way they, the way they rationalize it is that it's that there is groups, right? Because it's all about group identity that are oppressive and therefore oppressors, and there are groups that are oppressed. So it's, it's a permanent label of victim and victimizer, okay? And there is no getting out of this. And so this is how they can rationalize that, oh, you're a cisgendered white male. Well, then your opinion means nothing. You can't even speak. Your opinion has no value because you don't have my lived experience. And you and even if you're here, here's the funny thing here's the funniest thing right so okay they've already labeled all cisgendered white males are the devil basically and so you 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 hold no weight you have your words have no meaning and have no value you as a person have no value in fact that's why i can get away with on twitter saying i think we should kill all white men and guess what twitter ain't gonna take that tweet down or ban that person in fact that person works for the New York Times now after she's tweeted that we should kill all white men, okay? That's perfectly acceptable, okay? Because white men have historically, they, again, this is their ideology, have had power over everyone else on the planet, evidently. So, so they, they have no value within their ideological structure, okay? However... <laughs> let's say you're a black man who does not hold their opinions. Oh, they've got a label for you too. You're complicit in white supremacy. Meaning if you say it's ridiculous that mathematics is somehow, you know, uh, systemically racist. Oh, well then you're just complicit. And they have this, this 
this uh, idea that that you do that you hold a false consciousness. So even though by quote unquote identity, you know, oh, let's say you're a black lesbian woman and you don't agree with them. Well, you still don't get in. It's all about the ideology. You could be a black lesbian woman. I mean, you've got like three, four ticks on the identity bing, identity politics bingo card. And because you hold a differing opinion, they just label you complicit as an, of the oppressors. You are complicit with the oppressors. You have a false consciousness. Okay, so this is how they justify all of this. Okay, I think it's important to understand how the ideology works, why they think the way they do. And, but again, none of this stands up to any kind of reasoning or rationale or logic. It all falls apart very quickly. Okay. It's so just linguistic fuckery. It is, absolutely. So how is it that the average person who can't justify this because they don't know these ideological justifications that I've just told you about, the average person doesn't know any of this. So how do they get caught up in it? How do they, why do they go along with it? Why do they not, why are they not critical in thinking of these theories of the, of this linguistic fuckery that they get caught up in, buy into, believe, and then regurgitate? What is, what's in the gap here? Why, why does that happen? Okay. Next, I've got one other question to add on to that. At what point does it become dangerous? Because some people just go along with it because they do believe, um, you know, love is love or whatever was on that sign. And then it gets to a point where they're like, yeah, let's defund the police. And there is a line there. You can go around supporting love all you want to, but at what point does that go too far? I, I would say right from the beginning. <laughs> like, because in reality, they don't stop at love is love. That's a slogan. That gets their foot in the door. They're going to follow that up with something, right? They don't just there's not they don't just run around going love is love, love is love. No, no, it it never stops there. It's always going further, right? So that's just the slogans, and they're just empty slogans. Like, oh, we follow the science. Yeah, no, you don't. That ain't fucking science. <laughs> that's an empty slogan. What? Wow. Just because you use the word science and you use the word research, okay, show me the science. Show me the research. I want to see this biologist, the science that proves there's no biological difference between men and women. I want to see that. I'd like to see how the fuck she mind-fucked herself so good that she could say that as a biologist. I want to see that science. You know? But that, the reality is that's not science. There is no science. It's a slogan. Okay, so let's get back to how, why are people susceptible to this? And it's actually very simple. It's about you being able to be authentic and accepting yourself authentically. Now, that seems on its surface to be relatively easy. Aren't we all authentic? Let me ask you this. How many people live their lives through a social media network profile? 
What are you selling in your social media network profile, right? So for instance, Facebook, these people are all on their, all have profiles and they, and they believe that these people who are labeled as friends, some of them you may have never even met in person, are friends, right? So this is a, this is a pseudo reality. This is not at all authentic. You're curating an image of yourself. And so this is why it's become so prevalent. And, and again, uh, even before social networking, there was people have a difficulty in authenticity because it, our tendency as human beings is to be liked, to be accepted, right? And so often people find it difficult to be authentic because if somebody doesn't like you being authentic, they don't like you, the real you. <laughs> and that's a lot more painful and harder for people to accept than if they're just playing a role. And so people start to curate an image of who they are. And this is what they present, not only on their, so on their Facebook profile, but in life. And we actually start this at a pretty young age. In fact, it's, you know, right preteen area, you know, part of our lives, depending on the individual, but somewhere between the ages of nine and 13 is when we begin to curate an image of who we are. Okay. And this is because we want to be accepted. We want to be part of a group. We want to have peers. Uh, we want to be liked. And so we started a young age just to curate an image of ourselves. And so the authentic you oftentimes isn't even a mature adult because you started at such a young age to curate an image of yourself and you never let yourself be who you really are, which is an interesting kind of paradox because it's kind of like, like, uh, like if you try to teach someone how to meditate, right? How do you meditate? Well, stop doing what's not meditation, right? It's how do you be authentic? Well, stop being inauthentic. Like that's, it's, it's, it's stop pretending or stop being something you're not, right? And that's just like, because meditation you could define as being in nothing, right? Doing nothing. So how do you meditate? We'll stop doing other stuff, <laughs> right? Stop, stop doing everything else. Stop thinking, stop uh, fidgeting, stop, you know, stop uh, focusing your attention. Like you, you just have to let go of everything else you're doing in order to meditate. And that's kind of like being authentic is letting go of that curated image, letting go of being that, that image that you've created for yourself. And in doing that, we, well, and again, that takes also being secure with who you are and being okay with not being liked, okay, for who you are. So there, it takes, it definitely takes an uh, extraordinary amount of courage because we're social beings. And so our tendency is to be accepted, to be liked, um, to look good, right? 
to be right. Like th- these are all aspects that we desire in our social interactions. And so it, it drives us to be inauthentic. It drives us to curate an image of who we are. But when you're authentic and you accept you for who you are and you no longer have to appear to people to, uh, in a certain way, you no longer have to be liked, you no longer have to be accepted, well, then you can question what everyone else is just going along with, right? You can, you can think about these ideas and break them down and even talk about the incongruencies and the problems with them, the defectiveness, the illogical, unrational aspects of them. Because you're not concerned with being accepted, being liked. You accept you for who you are. And so you don't need the acceptance, approval. You don't need to be liked. You don't need to be right. You don't need to look good. So there's, in that being authentic sounds simple, but it requires not being the image that you've spent most of your life curating of who you are. And first you have to identify that. You have to identify all those elements that you've made up over the years about who you are, what you are, that, you know, that you believe has created your, your friendships. Like a lot of, again, people have a tendency to play these roles and then their relationships are created out of these roles and they're creating relationships with people who are also playing roles. And because we're playing similar roles, we now are friends, but this is not authentic or genuine friendship. This is two fake people with a fake friendship. And so this is something that, it, that, that requires us to be, for one, reflective of how we are and why we do what we do, right? So it takes a presence of mind and recognizing in everything that we do and everything that we say, like questioning, why did I just say that, right? Like, Especially if like, if you find yourself just saying things that aren't necessarily true or that you don't necessarily believe, like, why, why did I just say that? Do I need to be liked here? Do I, am I afraid of conflict or confrontation? Right? So it takes a, almost like a, 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 it takes really a deconstruction of that subjective self-image that we've curated over years and years and years and years and years, but you, you have to become present to it. You have to become aware of it. You have to recognize it and see it before you can start to deconstruct it and let it go. And then, and what, and why, what, well, let me ask you, Gigi, why do you think I would make that? Why do I think that that would be an effective solution to the manipulation through language? Well, I'd say if we're in the practice of being authentic and asking questions, 
then we're not just going to go along with an ideology because it's popular. We're not going to go along with it because it's it's cool or it's PC or it's um, you know it's what everybody's doing or it's it's not some big pie in the sky. We're going to look at it, know where we stand with it, and then make up our own mind about it instead of being right. swept away by the undercurrent. Right. And there's that element of virtue there as well. Um, when you can be you authentically, and then you recognize your virtues, you don't need to follow an ideology. You don't need to regurgitate phrases to gain some sense of false virtue. Because remember, that's one of the things they're selling. And that's one of the reasons people are buying. Because people live these inauthentic lives, so they don't recognize their own virtues. They don't even know their own values. They don't know their, they don't know their morals. You know, they, they have become disconnected from their authentic self, and therefore they're disconnected from any sense of authentic values that they may hold or virtues that they may have. And so in order to get in touch with your, your virtues, your real virtues, you must get in touch with the authentic you. And then once you recognize your virtues, well, then you don't need to virtue signal, right? Because you already recognize that you have authentic virtues because you are authentically being you and you recognize the virtues of your authenticity and the other virtues that you have. So you don't need to try to convince someone through some mindless action or phrase that you have virtue. And so you can see why, why I've said that, in, 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 especially in the last 10 years, because of social media, because people are curating these false images at a higher degree than we ever have in history, right? A hundred years ago, the only social interactions you had, for the most part, a majority, was in person with people, <laughs> you know, like actually face-to-face. -face. Now, does it mean that people were all authentic? No. There's, people were still curating images of who they were. But it, was, it wasn't in every aspect of your life all the time. People are now living their lives through, through Facebook profiles, like selling that image all the time, even when they meet people in person. They're, they're reflecting that Facebook profile, right? They're, they're being what that Facebook profile says they are. And more than that, it almost feels like they, I've spent so much time focusing on this, this curation process that, and it's not just um, Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, but it, it's other, you know, sites that you put yourself out there. It's dating apps like Tinder. It's all of these, these non-physical interactions that we do with people. We spend so much time focusing on creating this image to push out through the internet that we start to believe that that's actually who we are. And we start to justify it and defend it and 
really starting to pull apart at it is is you know risking who we actually think we are, risking our own identity. So it's something I see a lot of people deeply protect and defend. It's not something that's easy sometimes for people to just, oh, look at that, I'm being inauthentic, let me just shift. That takes some practice and some skill to to be able to just, you know, on a dime shift your come from or shift who, how you're being in the moment. But the more you practice it, that's why I started earlier with when we're in the practice of authenticity, meaning it's not just like I'm being an authentic person. Awesome. Here we go. It's that I'm actively in the process of identifying when I'm being authentic and when I'm not being authentic. And I mean, I'm, I'm no master at this. I still notice every day there's something that pops up. Like yesterday, my, I, I did something and my girlfriend was like, why did you do that? And I felt her judgment behind the question. And I automatically started defending. And then, you know, we got into an argument and stuff and we got home and went in different rooms for a couple of minutes. <laughs> and I, I had a moment to reflect in, in some quiet. And I was like, why did I just have a reaction to defend this, this, the way that I laughed about something? As if I believe that how I acted is who I am. And then why did I have to like turn it around and make it into an argument and, and escalate it the way that I did? It was completely unconscious. But noticing that right. pattern, I'm like, wow, look at that. That's something I do. I can authentically look at it and notice the pattern. And then right. next time I see that trigger, I can say, oh, this is when that pattern usually comes up. Or last time, this is what happened. And I'm going to be present to how it unfolds this time. So it's constantly being in the practice of authenticity for me is truly the game because there is no like like most everything else there is no arriving at this sometimes i'm authentic sometimes i'm not authentic and i imagine it's the same for most everybody else right i mean everyone else over the age of or you know over the age of six or whatever <laughs> kids are 100 authentic we learned this inauthenticity game right right it was funny. I was at the grocery store yesterday or the day before I forget, but uh, there was this guy in line ahead of me and he had like a four-year-old with him and, and she, you know, she was kind of, you know, playing around and, and the uh, checkout clerk was, you know, trying to like, you know, interact with her and, you know, have fun with her or whatever. And, uh, and so there's like, you know, there's a, there's a, there's there's an engagement happening between the three of them between the dad the daughter and the checkout clerk right and as they're leaving the dad goes do you want to say goodbye <laughs> you want to say goodbye and the and the checkout clerk's all bye you know and the girl just shakes her head no like no <laughs> I, I don't not interested <laughs> not interested i i I have very little doubt that I'll ever see this person again, <laughs> but she was clear. She was totally clear. Like, no, like I don't want to say goodbye. Um, <laughs> oh, how rude. <laughs> <laughs> You're absolutely right. For a four-year-old, there's nothing but authenticity. Right. And, and they become, and we become domesticated over time. And I'd say like it gets the worst when we get into our preteens because now all our peers are part of the domestication process because they're all. Do we lose you? 
Did you lose me? All trying to adopt an identity. They're trying to force identities on you. You're trying oh. to take on an identity. You know, like. Is that just me, or is anybody else hearing Brandon? No, I can hear him doing yeah. that too. I, yeah, okay. I can hear you. Okay. Doing I'm back. Can hear Brandon. Yeah, I'm back. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was tripping out for Telegram. a second. Telegram, cut me out. Cut me out. Cut me out. Well, well, no, you, would, you up you really know, fast. Yeah, it was like What's it, that? It, it. It treated you like a rubber band. Like it would stop your audio, but then it would come back in, and everything that you said in thirty seconds would be done in five seconds. Oh wow! I've I've actually I've heard that with other people. <laughs> Whoa! All right, can you say that again? <laughs> <laughs> Trippy. And can you say that again? <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't even know what I was saying. Oh, I know. I was talking about authenticity of children and how we yeah. get domesticated, and that domestication exactly. really goes into overdrive in in our preteens because we're struggling for identity, the, the kids around us, our peers are struggling for identity and, and we want acceptance and we want to be liked. And so we start to curate an image of ourselves. So inauthenticity, is all, it's, it's like a part of the human condition. It's part of our domestication, right? To make us basically acceptable. Because there's, there's also a confusion around authenticity and, and, and just being a dick. Like some people, they think being authentic is just being rude <laughs> and uncouth. Like, like, no, just because you spoke your mind that moment, what's really behind what you said? Like, maybe, <laughs> you know, like maybe, you know, it may just come across as rude or whatever, but it doesn't mean it's authentic. You know what I mean? Um, because you could be I'm still not. coming from a place of wanting to portray an image of who you are. And that's part of the image is in this moment when I'm a, when I'm confronted in this type of in a situation, I go to being rude or I go to being angry. And this is really, it's still part of a curated image. So don't confuse rudeness or brashness or brazenness with, with, uh, with authenticity. Can I, can I say something? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Dana. absolutely. Um, I was just going to say, I, I do feel like there's different levels of being authentic. Uh, and when I say that, meaning, you know, tone of voice, I'm a very nonverbal, you know, before I, I don't even have to say something. Most people will be like, oh, they can see it in my face or my hands or whatever. So, right. um, you know, that's all things to be present about when being authentic. That's all. Yeah, actually. Yeah, I've actually gotten that feedback from people uh, in the past where they've told me straight up like, dude, you, you're either really bad at hiding <laughs> how you feel or what's going on for you, or you just don't care. Because like I've been told, I just kind of wear my heart on my sleeve. Like if, like I, and it, I guess it shows up in my face. Like if I'm if I'm disgusted by what you just said, you'll know it because <laughs> it shows up in my face. <laughs> I don't have to say a word, but I guess just the look on my face tells the whole story of, of my reaction to what you just said or whatever. 
That reminds me of a certain participant that we had the pleasure of working with over and over and over and over. And when we happened to be in Puerto Rico doing the men's retreat, he was talking about how his girlfriend, how he never is able to keep a girlfriend and his last girlfriend left him because she came in the room and literally asked him, do I look fat in this dress? And he looked at her and was like, yep, absolutely. <laughs> and she was like, well, I couldn't believe you said that to me. I can't believe you think I look fat. And she dumped him and left. And he was like, well, it's her problem. She's got the, the issues with being fat. And she's the one that asked me the question. So she wanted an answer. I was just being authentic. Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> you were being clueless to what was going on being grass or, or something like that like yeah maybe you can speak into that a little bit because i'm trying to i'm trying to throw that in there with I, some context yeah, I, I, actually, I know exactly who you're talking about because he had another story about he got beat up at a club because he was dancing with other guys girlfriends <laughs> yep, same and, he's, and he's yeah and he's acting clueless like why why were they mad i'm like and i I don't know if you've seen him dance, like salsa dance. Dude, for one, he's oh, absolutely he's amazing. Oh, dude, he's amazing. But, dude, if he was dancing like that with my girlfriend, yeah, that, like, you know, be aware, be present, dude. Like, <laughs> you're probably pissing a lot of people off if you're dancing with their girlfriends like that, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's, and again, he may be being authentic. Like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say he's necessarily being inauthentic. He may be being authentic in that moment. Yes. He may be being, uh, uh obtuse, you know, like ignorant of how others will react. And I think that that's, <laughs> this is how and why we cap our authenticity, um, is because right. most of us are mindful in how people react to us now and there's also a difference between authenticity and honesty right he may have been honest right but the, 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 I, there is a distinction there right like when he told his girlfriend she looked fat um was that the right moment <laughs> well be... i mean it, if she's gonna ask a question i just i feel like uh at least Justin, he's, he's always said, if you're going to ask me a question, I'm going to give you, you know, the answer. It might not be the answer that you want to hear, but right. I mean, if you're, you know, so I feel like in her, I mean, if she asks that, then she should be open to whatever feedback she's going to get. I mean, and that right. goes for anybody, really. It does, but there's also, and again, now I'm just going off of my experience personally, and I know that there's also an aspect of the feminine, right? Where they're sure. not necessarily asking <laughs> because they want honest feedback in that moment. What they're looking for is some kind of affirmation, some kind of confirmation, right? There's an insecurity there, right? Um, and, if you're, and if you're mindful and present to that, you may be more tactful in your response. I'm not saying you have to be dishonest. Right, because you can be honest and not answer the question directly. Right? You say, "Oh, baby, you look good." Right? I, I didn't really answer the question there, but you know what? 
she loves the answer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I didn't, I, I'm not going to, I didn't say she didn't look fat. I didn't say she does look fat. I just say, Ooh, baby, you look good. Right. And she's going to love that answer because for one, the feminine isn't necessarily looking for a logical, rational, reasonable response necessarily. There's no direct you know, communication usually. Right. It's exactly. Men, that's how men, now men think that way. And so our, our natural tendency would be to answer directly. But those of us who have been in relationships <laughs> have learned throughout the years that you, be, you, you need to be more tactful because she's not necessarily looking for the, the answer to her question or not, maybe not a direct answer. She wants to know, does she, am I appealing to you? Right. That's the subtext there. Or she's do fishing it. for a compliment. Like I uh, wish I yeah. had a compliment right now. Hey, how do I look? Like it's, yeah. it, it's with, with feminine energy specifically, and this doesn't, you know, specifically fit to just women, but anyone who's coming from that feminine space, it's more about the context than about the point. So if I said, how do I look in this dress? If you can, if you're able to be present to the context of the question, you'll understand it more um, completely than if you just go off of the words that exist. Whereas the masculine side of it would be, this is exactly the words I'm using to get to the exact point that I'm trying to make. And I want an exact direct answer. <laughs> right. Like, uh, like sometimes my, my girlfriend does this all the time, actually. I'll say like, um, you know, I was thinking about getting some burgers for us. Um, do you want a burger for dinner tonight? And she'd look at me and go, mm, I've eaten so many carbs this week already. And I'm like, oh my God, is that a yes? Is it a no? <laughs> you want me to get you a lettuce wrapped burger? <laughs> I'm like, then I have to go fishing through it. But if I pull back and I've, I've been present to her all week, then I can remember the conversations that she's had around carbs and burgers and everything else and realize that in her saying that, addressing the context of her answer, oh, it makes sense to me. She doesn't want a burger tonight because you know she doesn't like burgers without buns and it has a bunch of carbs and blah, 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 blah. And so the context is crucial. So Candide, uh, what's his, whatever his name was. <laughs> <laughs> so our, our buddy in that, in that example of, of the, the, do I look fat in this dress? There is a bigger context that's being addressed there. And if she was earlier talking about how he doesn't compliment enough, or if she was, you know, feeling really hot and good and she just wanted to, you know, a little affirmation or something. She could be looking for compliments. She could be looking to test him. She could be on her last straw and giving him a test. Let's watch him fail this one and I'm out, which might've been what happened. <laughs> so it's, that's the feminine energy. That's more of the context. Whereas the masculine energy is more of the point. If that makes sense. <laughs> So can we uh, maybe bring this around full circle a little bit, Brandon? I'd love for you to go back over the the three elements of critical theory. I only wrote down one of them, selling the dream. But then I remember there was conflict, and then maybe like no, no solution or something like that. Like yeah, it's yeah. So there's the, in the in the conflict, 
So, and I guess that's as good a word as any is the second aspect. Um, I've also used the word to describe that aspect as, as problem, like creating a problem, problematizing. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's an identification of, it's identifying a negative way that which stands between you and the dream, right? So like, for instance, those who want to abolish the police, what they'll start to do is just identify all negative aspects of policing, right? They won't recognize or acknowledge anything good <laughs> about policing, right? And again, this is the same thing Alex Jones would do if he was talking about, you know, gay frogs or something. Like he's going to take the same kind of approach where he, you know, the dream is always con- contextual with him. And it's all about freedom and liberty, right? We, we, we need to be free. We need to be, you know, we, we need to have liberty. That's kind of his, the dream he's always selling. So that's contextual with his conversations. But what he does is he starts to identify problems. And then he identifies an amorphous enemy, right? And, and this is being done all over, you know, the deep state or the, the establishment or the elite, right? So it's just, it's this amorphous thing. There's, there's, you're not clearly identifying anything, right? To, to like, okay, let's address this, right? Because in reality, he's not, he's not looking for a solution. He's not looking for a remedy. And now again, I'm not saying that there's any malintent with anything he's saying. I don't know that. For all I know, he has the best of intentions and he really, all he cares about is people's freedom and liberty and you know that. That may be honestly what he wants, but his approach isn't going to achieve that. It, it, these approaches can never achieve anything because they have no clear goal. They have no clear way of achieving it. There's no plan, right? It's just a whirlwind of complaint. Right? Well, it's like and nearsightedness, it's, right? It's right. like and not it's, being able to see perpetual. past the problem. Right. And it's, and, and, and again, with a, with a person who's being intentionally a critical theorist, it's a, per, it needs to be perpetual because you need to perpetually be a victim or you need to be perpetually be the victimizer. So there, that's a perpetual condition that can never be addressed because then it can yeah. always be pulled out and say, it just, it, you know, we need to tear down more. We need to tear down more. We need to tear down more. And I guarantee you, if they actually achieve, let's say, abolishing the police, every police department, every prison completely shut down, right? And then, of course, murder rates spike, you know, all kinds of crazy shit starts happening. You know what they're going to blame it on? Come on. Come on, man. White supremacy. Institutional racism. Exactly. 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 (laughs) They start back right, right back on it. Well, it's because there's still institutional racism. It's because there's white privilege. It's, you know, so they just fall right back into that same conversation, right? You know, I actually and just heard somebody talking just like the other day, watching some video, trying to get ready for this call. And she was going on and on about like, in order to understand this entire situation, you have to look at it through the lens or the framework of like uh, oppressor and oppressed. Otherwise you can't see directly what's going on. And I'm like, but if you're always looking through that lens, what else can you, what else could you see? (laughs) What else is possible to see? So even if everything's gone, you're still going to be like, 
Oh, look at that guy. That's an oppressor finding in some way instead of being open to however else these people could show up. Or even if like if, if all they ever looked through was the lens of the solution. Oh, this is just something we got to get back on track. Then they're going to end up getting to a solution or experiencing the solution. But that's absolutely not what's going on. So I didn't really put it together until you said that. But that's absolutely right. It's, it's getting into a perpetual state of oppressor and oppressed. And as long as you look at it through that lens, she's absolutely right. You'll completely understand the entire argument, but you'll also never be able to solve or get out of that argument with looking through that lens. No. Yeah. And that's, again, it's not, it's not designed. Yeah. It's perpetual. Yeah. It's designed. The approach is designed to be perpetual. You know, it's not actually trying to achieve a solution. I mean, if they were really, if they really wanted equality, right, and they wanted people to be treated fairly and they wanted justice, I mean, these are their slogans, right? Would they be pushing racism? Because that's what they're doing. They're pushing racism. So if you want fairness, if you want equality, if you want justice, how, how, does, how do you push racism? And see, again, now, by, by my rationale, because I'm actually rationalizing this using logic and reason to do so, it doesn't work out. It's a, it's a fallacy. I could see it on its face, but because their rationale comes from a place that it's all about power, right? So there, if you're, if, you know, if I'm, if I'm uh, redistributing, <laughs> if I'm taking all white people's shit and giving it to brown people, that's okay. That's not racist. That's perfectly fair because it's all about power. And historically, notice they're never actually addressing right now, right? There's historical oppression, right? These are the words they use. People who have been historically oppressed, right? Are they being oppressed right now? You know, and if they are, well, let's address that. How are they being oppressed? By whom are they being oppressed? Because that we can address. But no, you speak in these amorphous terms. They're, these are historically oppressed people, right? right? And now they've got a historical trauma. Oh my God, my great-great-grandparents went through some shit and it's fucking tearing me apart. That's ridiculous. I mean, my great-great-grandparents went through some shit, but it doesn't affect me in any way, shape, or form. I'm they all went through some shit. Exactly. Like, <laughs> There's not one. Two hundred years ago was not the easiest of surviving. Yeah. <laughs> so in reality, everyone's ancestors at some point went through some really gnarly shit, right? Um, but it's not. It's it's. This is not an actual justification. This is why it can be used in perpetuity. It can be a perpetual condition because you're not actually even addressing the moment. You're saying his, these people are historically oppressed. I guarantee you, if the eradication of white people happened, <laughs> which it seems like is what they want, right? So, okay, all the white people are gone. We got rid of all, with the devil. Got rid of all the white men, especially the cisgendered ones. We got rid of all the white women. All their white ancestors are all gone, right? Well, who's next on the list? It'd be the Hispanics or the Asians. No, the Asians would get it bad. The yeah, be the Asians next. Or yeah, the because French. they excel. Well, because based on their culture, the Asian culture, like right now, the Asians are just kind of sitting quietly, like, fuck, we're not getting into this. 
Because if we, if somebody shines the light on them, they're like, well, we, on average, Asians make more money than every other demographic. Uh, they're more successful in all domains of life. <laughs> like, like they have, they're more likely to have a family that is sustained and maintained, like an actual nuclear family. You know, parents stay married, kids are you know brought up in two parent homes. Uh, they're more successful on average per capita in school. They're more successful on average in the workplace. They achieve higher positions on average. They make more money on average per capita than any other demographic. So they'd be next <laughs> and they'd be it's called already, the oppressor. It's already happening. Because, it's already oh, yeah. happening. With, with Asians? It's Asians. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's clearly their number two and number three is going to be quote unquote conservative, conservative Hispanics. I mean, it's all about yeah. who's on top when this, when this is all over and the professors are hoping they're the ones that are going to be on top when this is all over. Well, that's, that's the only, we talked, you know, we talked about earlier how they don't, they don't have a plan. They've never spelled out a plan. Well, the plan is that they'll all be in charge. See, if you read all the literature from these communists over the decades, they're, they're, they allude to, well, then all the intelligentsia, all the smart people would take charge because we know how to make this work because we're, we're professors, we're smart people, we're intelligent. And so we would work out a system that would be fair and equitable to everyone. Everyone would be, it'd be a utopia. You know, just put a bunch of professors who can't even make it in the real world. Okay, mind you, that's why they're professors. Okay, these are people that have no actual real world experience at creating anything that's why it was such a monumental failure in the soviet union it's what was such a monumental failure in china i mean china did like literally fell on its face starved 80 million people mao finally dies and in the last couple decades they've They've uh, elevated more people out of poverty in less time than ever in history. How did they do that? They adopted capitalism. <laughs> like, like, that's the funny thing. Like clearly the economic model of their utopia is so dysfunctional that all it ever does is destroy. And China was able to elevate itself out of poverty by adopting capitalism. So they're this weird hybrid system of communism slash capitalism that is the only reason that they've made it this far is because they adopted some form of capitalism but yeah it, it, and it absolutely they would always be identifying a new oppressor and it would yeah you know what they, go ahead i was gonna say you know what they you know what they say in my my parents who are both teachers hate it and my brother hates it when i say it uh is you can't teach right you can't make it in the real world you teach uh, they hate it when i say that but yeah that, that's that, the only that, that, you can't I, teach I, I i now i kind of feel bad about saying it because i didn't realize it was going right. so close right. to them, but you're related to three professors um but not, yeah, not I mean, professors, not 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 professors, oh, my, a shop like teacher, an art, an art teacher. Okay, right, right. Okay, yeah. So, but I, I mean, but uh, not that there aren't 
good people who teach. You know what I mean? Like I'm not, I don't want to play them all out as, you know, as these fiends of our culture, you know, trying to undermine everything. It's really a small percentage. Like most teachers, especially like, you know, elementary school teachers, high school teachers, I mean, they mostly got into it because they wanted to do something positive in their community. You know, they wanted to educate, they wanted to elevate, like a lot of them, just like police officers, like not all police officers, but a lot of them, they got into it because they have some sense of duty within their community. They want to do some kind of good. Same with people who get into the military. Not all, but a lot of them, they want to do something, you know, positive, you know, and there's even politicians <laughs> who actually got into politics with the idea that they were going to do something for their community. They wanted to make a positive, have a positive effect within their community. Um, I know I can name at least one. Like to me, Tulsi Gabbard genuinely seems like someone who really wanted to do something good for her community. She spent a couple years in Washington, realized she was among the worst people on earth and got out. <laughs> it, was, it was like our best chance of having an honest, you know, politician in Washington. And, uh, and she's gone, you know, so <laughs> didn't last long. Um, but there's very, there's very few and far between. Um, and, it, and when I speak about the intelligentsia and academia, I'm, I'm sure even at the university level, it's a smaller percentage. It's, I doubt it's even a third that are really in that mindset of we're going to run this shit, <laughs> you know, like, um, but there's, they're there. They're definitely there. And they're the ones who've been pushing out these publications, you know, for the last 50, 60 years, they, they're the ones who write these papers. They're the ones who push out these agendas. Um, you know, the Ibram Kendi's of the world, they're, they're there and they, and they're, they are well aware of the agenda they're pushing, of the results it will create, of the eggs they will need to break for their omelet, um, you know, the gulags they'll need to open. They, they are well aware of, of the path they're heading down. And because they believe that they will be in charge when it all collapses, which, again, these people don't know history. If you look at history... Right they will be the first ones that are eradicated because they know the plan. They know how, right. how the it's joke's on unfolding. Them. Yeah, exactly. They'll be right. the, the jokes, first. The joke's on them. Yeah. yeah. They're useful idiots, yeah. even though they're exactly. well-educated. Most, most of the time it's because they're tenured, right? They, they've got that sweet, sweet right. tenure. And in a lot of, in a lot of universities, they're, they have to publish every so often. And, you know, Critical race theory sounds good, so I'll write a paper on that. You know, it'll get me all the applause of all the intelligentsia, and hey, look at that. You know, it's. I think a lot of it. I agree with you, man. I think a lot of it is um, people just towing that line because it sounds good, and yeah. you know, there are people who genuinely think though that when the dust settles, they're going to be in charge. And it's funny that they're parroting something by the people. They're parroting something that the people who are actually going to probably be in charge when the dust settles, they're, they're simply parroting that and hoping to God yeah. that, well, you know, may, maybe I'll be, maybe I'll be, maybe I'll have a harem and, you know, a compound somewhere. Who knows? Right. Right. And some of them already do. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Right. Like, <laughs> look at the, 
look at the leaders of Black Lives Matter. You know, she's got yeah. what, four houses, you know, and like this, this is ridiculous. You're a communist. You're a communist right. with four houses. <laughs> like, uh, um, but the the funny thing is, is and here's here's my because I don't even think Marx was malintent. I think he really believed his shit. I think he really believed he could, you know, create a utopia on Earth. I don't believe that most of these people had ill intent. I think early on, somebody identified elements within Marx's theory that would, that would inevitably lead to tyranny. They, like just, they just spot it. They're like, oh, pff, this can only end one way. <laughs> like, this is a formula for tyranny. And, and, it, and it's perfect because you're selling a dream. It's like, oh, utopia. You know, everyone wants utopia. So everyone buys in, but it cannot not lead to tyranny. Because it, there is no more freedom of your labor. You know, that's why it's, such, that's why it's an anti-capitalist movement. What, what is the identifying factor of capitalism? And it's our personal power with our labor that we choose to give our labor and to exchange our labor. And we choose what we exchange it for when we exchange it. Like we have that power. And in their utopia, you don't have that. You don't have that freedom. You don't have that power. And that's why it naturally must, like step one is tyranny. You got to have it because you got to force people to work. Like, look, we need people over here doing this. So you go over there and do that. We need people over here doing this. So you go over there and do that. So it's somebody just, I think, identified. And I don't, because I don't think it was, <clears throat> and it, <clears throat> I don't know for certain, I just don't think necessarily Marx was like, oh, let me, you know, underhandedly pass off this, you know, this theory that will lead to tyranny. I think he probably really believed that his stuff would lead to a utopia because he didn't even like when he wrote his theories, he wasn't like, look, we need to force this on the people. He was like, he wrote his theories from a place of like, this is where we're going. This is like the natural the natural progression of humanity. He really believed that, that like we would evolve into this. So from his point that's of view, about him. you didn't, you didn't need to force anything. It would just, that's, this is how things are going to unfold. It was like, he was prognosticating, you know, like, okay. You know, looking at, you know, his, he had his science, which is, you know, wasn't science, it was, you know, <laughs> his interpretation of Hegel applied to his theories of economics and history. And he just believed that this was a natural progression for humanity, that humanity will naturally lead itself into this utopia, right? And, and of course, his biases came in where he identifies like where the conflict is. And that's why we have a neo-Marxism is because it evolved out of that, right? Because nowadays they're not, they're not selling the proletariat bourgeoisie conflict, although they are at some level. <laughs> They've created 30 other conflicts to be in there as well. <laughs> like, of course, they've got the class, right? They've got, which is the, the bourgeoisie and proletariat conflict. They've got that as part of their new neo-Marxism, but they've thrown in identity politics and all these other things. So they've created a multitude of conflicts from which to act on, you know? And so it's this multitude of conflicts that they feel can, you know, bring about their utopia. And, and again, maybe even these Marxists in the universities, 
they may all believe it too. They may actually believe that there will be, that there can be a utopia. Now, I don't believe they're so ignorant to think that it doesn't have to go to totalitarianism first, but they may genuinely believe that that's a temporary thing because that's kind of how it's marketed. <laughs> like, hey, we, you got to bring the state in. But in Marx's theory, the state is just to like kind of set everything up, like, you know, to set up all the collective systems and to redistribute all the assets and property and all that. But the natural progression would be that it would just become uh, uh, unneeded, right? It would, it, we would get to the point where we would no longer even need a state. And then it would just be this collectivist utopia. And again, a lot of these professors may actually believe that. I don't believe that they're so ignorant that to know that we, we, you have to go through that element of tyranny first. So, but I, I believe that the, there's, there's forces much bigger than academia pushing this. And, and I think that they get that they know for certain that element of tyranny is there and they're banking on it. They're counting on it because for them, that's the final step is the tyranny. They know there's not going to be some collectivist utopia because they know they will be in charge. And all the useful idiots who think they're going to be in charge, they'll get rid of right away. And then, you know, then we'll be on the list of who's next because we speak against it <laughs> and we stand against it. And I know there's no freaking way they're going to get me to give them my labor for free or to not have power with my choice of what I give my intention, my labor, my, my thought, you know, my ingenuity, like I, I value that within me. I value myself as an individual. So I will never buy into that. So I would be, you know, next on the list, you guys being part of this conversation, you'd be on the next list, but we wouldn't even be the first ones. It would be the Ibram Kendis and those fools because they they got what they needed, which was the state, right? And those pe those people are now an uh, because they know what they did to get it there. They know the 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 mechanics that were implemented to create the the tyranny. They need to be the first ones done away with, which again is comedy. It's pure comedy that all these people who are pushing it aren't going to be the ones who run it. Right. But they as, think if they... the, as if the concepts themselves weren't funny enough. Right. <laughs> well, any, anything else on this one? You guys feel like we beat this one to death or any other one insights? Third, the third element of your distinction uh okay so number one selling the dream selling number the two dream. problematizing creating the victims and the victimizers and creating a mm. perpetual conflict and number three is no solution <laughs> no remedy no actual identifiable uh element to change or to improve or to replace that which you're tearing apart. So you could not only is it no solution, but it's it's tearing a tearing down and no replacement, a tearing down and no solution. 
I got to write that down. Right. It's, it's, does this make me look fat? But as a, as a, as a social concept, there's no way, right. there's no right answer. Right. Exactly. Right. And it's, and it's such <laughs> a, awesome. it's such an interesting, uh, and again, I've, I'm very familiar with these linguistic games because I've seen it in so many different domains. Um, especially in like the personal development movements um, where they play these same, very similar linguistic games where everything can be turned around on someone. And it's a, it's a game of manipulation, you know, where, you know, you're, 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 you're attempting to get someone to do something you want them to do. So you use language to manipulate them. And if they rebut or, don't see the wisdom of your statements so that they're not acting in the way you want them to act. Then you start to turn things around on them and you start to use more language against them. And, and it's, and it's meant to incite like a sense of uh, a conflict within their, within their authenticity, a conflict within their sense of self, a conflict within their sense of virtue. Right. And so that people use, language to manipulate in that way where I twist and I turn until you feel sufficiently uh, shamed <laughs> into acting the way that I want you to act. Um, and I mean, I've seen Perfect. this play out in relationships. <laughs> Perfect example. I was, I, was, I was staffing a leadership workshop in Durango. And I got on the first check-in call as staff and everybody was late. <laughs> everybody but me. And they all got on. And then the last, the final, the person who set up the call and the whole thing finally got on. They're like, all right, everybody, let's, uh, let's go ahead and go around the circle and clean up our broken commitment of being on time. And I'm sitting there like, I don't have shit to clean up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the only one here on time. I was, I was like a busy signal until someone started the call. And so everybody's like, someone jumped on and said, well, actually, I'd like the organizer to clean up their mess first. And it ended up in this huge argument of who was going to clean up their mess first. <laughs> and then at the end of it, they're like, all right, so who's committed to the workshop? And I was like, everybody, I apologize for my back and forth, but I am not committed. To doing this workshop like if that's the way we're starting it out i'm i'm bailing jumping ship and <laughs> of course being in that space with a bunch of coaches <laughs> all of them went into coach mode they're like well gingy uh you're you're out of integrity right now and i'm like okay yeah and <laughs> like well you do you, you have to stay in integrity i was like are you an in integrity do you have a problem with integrity? Do you, what kind of issues are you, what stories are you making up about my integrity? <laughs> I quickly found myself in a, in a battle of linguistic fuckery. <laughs> you know, yeah. It was yeah. Just and that's everybody firing shots back to try to manipulate. And I'm just like, ching, 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 shielding myself <laughs> from all of it. And it was hilarious, but I've never seen such a clear example. Like nobody there was, trying to empower me nobody there was trying to coach me through what was coming up for me it was just like 
well, you're out of integrity. And so you should do this thing we all want you to do because uh, integrity is good. <laughs> right, right. Integrity. Integrity bombs. Um, it's it's funny because I've had lots of I've had lots of experience with people like that, and typically my response to them is like, "Look, your Jedi mind tricks don't work on me." <laughs> drop it. You're like, look, I'm not even going to play this game with you because I know what you're doing. <laughs> you cannot manipulate me with your language. Um, so that that's been my go-to, and and you typically I laugh. I'm like <laughs> your Jedi mind tricks don't work on me. So. Well, the funny thing is that if you like me playing ball with them, ran it full circle and brought it back to them, they had no they had no idea where to go with it, except for oh, you're just being a smart rat. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly, because the game will just go on. It just goes in circles. Because I again, yeah. I played the game. I played the linguistic fuckery game, and it you know if you've got you know, two skilled people in linguistic fuckery, it will just perpetually go in a circle because you just constantly shifting the language to make the other, the, the offender, make yourself the victim, right? It's just this, Oh, what did you, what was that phrase? The, Oh, uh, Darvo defend, um, argue, is argue. It defend, argue, attack. No, it's defend, attack. Yeah, that's right. Reverse, and then reverse, reverse victim and opposer. Offender. Or yeah, victim and offender. Victim and offender. Victim. Yeah. Yeah. D A R V O, the acronym defend, uh, attack. attack, and reverse, reverse the victim and oppressor. Victim and offender. Yeah, oppressor, offender, whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's exactly what was going on. And funny enough, that's the shit I pulled on those coaches. <laughs> like, oh, exactly. And that's why my, I said it's my integrity. <laughs> I was like, well, uh, are you attached to my integrity? Are you an integrity? How am I a reflection of yourself? And boom, they break down like, I guess I'm out of integrity. I wasn't here on time and I'm arguing and oh my god, my relationships and they go lose their shit because <laughs> they're they're, of course, they're not an integrity. <laughs> Bottom line, I showed like up. Some, this sounds like landmark. Oh, it's, yeah. It's, I mean, pretty it's, much it. Yeah. yeah. It's okay. the same thing. Like, they all do the same thing. That's why when I, I told Gingy when we started this, I'm like, look, we're an antithesis to all those personal development groups out there. Because that's what, what people don't realize is landmark and LifeSpring and all those personal development companies. What's the one in Canada? The potential something potential whatever uh, they're human all potential movement or something no it's uh i forget what it is it's it's i forget there uh, is uh, one called the human potential down. movement oh yeah i'm sure i'm sure there's they're all over the world these are this is i mean but here's the thing they're all pushing postmodernist concepts they are the reason this this whole critical theory a neo-Marxist movement is taking off like wildfire is because everyone who's bought into that bullshit buys into the critical theories, buys into the postmodernism. You know, um, so that's why I told you when we started this, I'm like, look, we're an antithesis to that. You know, because I knew you had been exposed to it. I know I've seen it. You know, and and experienced it. So I was like, okay, w clearly. Because I saw a lot of those people being the first ones 
to jump on board with the critical theories. You know, I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like, you know, knowing it's been in academia since the 60s, but realizing that it had spread far beyond academia, you know, that it had made itself, made its way into popular culture. It had made its way into, you know, what we call personal development trainings. A lot of these personal development writers, right? They're pushing these theories. They're pushing these principles, you know, this absolute relativism, you know, and I'm, again, I can't, I'm not, I'm not saying all, you know, not all authors, you know, like I find tremendous value in some of Don Miguel Ruiz's works. Um, but there, there is this element and it's everywhere, you know? So if you've been part of any, any kind of self, if you've read any kind of self-help book, you know what I mean? Like it's everywhere. It's they've been pushing these principles everywhere, you know. Well, like, the shit of it, it is that at, at the core of it, there is some really powerful, you know, amazing personal growth tools stuff that's there in the middle of it. So, like, yeah, the they, stuff that I was they, exposed to. But there's contradictions. Yep. Yeah, but I changed right. it. Like that's why I yeah, started I'm, my workshops was because. I was like, okay, yeah, I'm not pushing this postmodernist bullshit. Like, <laughs> there's no fucking way. So I changed it. I'm like, look, there's some, there are some powerful principles and some powerful concepts that you can use to ha give people as tools to, you know, ha to have some kind of power and authoring in their life. Um, but at the same time, I I recognize these elements that they've sprinkled in that are a complete contradiction to. Like if you really want to empower people, you know, because I'm also an, an, I believe in individualism. You know, I don't believe everyone should be identified through a group, you know? Um, so I very much am a, a proponent of individualism, of freedom, of liberty. Like those are all for me sacred, you know? So I just kind of saw the writing on the wall and then I started recognizing it in a lot of the self-help books and stuff like that. And like, Oh my mm -hmm. God, like, this is everywhere. Like it is everywhere. But at the time, everywhere. I didn't see it as a threat. I saw it as like a nuisance, you know, <laughs> but it right, wasn't like until, a misunderstanding or something. Yeah. Yeah. Cause even up until 2015, when I had a girl tell me to use Zimmer Zur and, I'm, and I laughed at her, I'm like, look, <laughs> I go, this person wants to be treated like everyone else, right? <laughs> then they don't get their own special pronoun. I go, pick one. They can be a him. They can be a her. Because I didn't even know. I couldn't tell because it was, a, it was actually a youth training. It was teenagers. So I couldn't even tell whether it was a boy or a girl. You know what yeah, I mean? This kid was so in like, puberty. And like, you can, yeah. it's hard to tell some kids in puberty. It's the working thing. Yeah, about. exactly. So I couldn't tell. So I'm like, oh, all right. Uh, have her pick one. But I am not going to use Zim or Zer. And to me, again, I didn't see it. Cause I was like, I, I thought this was an anomaly. I thought this girl was just the, the, that was the, the first uh, time, dude. That was the ice yeah. That was the first time I'd ever seen it. The first time I'd ever heard it. I thought it was just some random piece of ridiculousness. And then phew, by 2018, <laughs> holy crap, it's yeah, everywhere. Three years. It was crazy. Yeah. But like, like yeah. I was saying, the shit of it is that there's really some empowering things embedded in it. 
And so when I started getting involved in other centers and working with people individually and getting to know people, like there's, there's a, a big group here in, in Austin that like, cause Landmark is here that they're all had gone through Landmark. And if you know anything about that, it's, it's different. They don't have the in-person workshops where you go through all the exercises and stuff. It's basically like sit down and learn this information. So it's all mental. And it's not experiential. Yeah, no, it's it's yeah, it's it's a the didactic method is what it's. Yeah, that's the methodology used. Um, and so like all of lecture, these people here, <laughs> it's like a lecture series. <laughs> yeah, and so all these people here, they're they like they get it, they understand it, they know the words, they know the terminology, but they don't have like an experience of it or an embodiment of it or like an intuitive understanding of it. And so I'm like, well, let's practice this. And I had to explain to people what holding space is and what that means. And, you know, simple stuff like that or, or like the reason behind distinctions. Like everyone's like, oh, no, no, you're not supposed to say I have to. You have to say I get to because uh, that's like empowering and stuff. And I'm like, you guys don't get it. The whole distinction is meant to show you whether you're coming from obligation or not. And if you're coming from obligation, you can shift out of it. Because obligation is not as fun and cool as not being an obligation. And so, like, it's, it's just a choice. It's like there's nothing to do unless you want to, and here's the tools to navigate the situation. And they all took it as, like, this, this how-to-live-your-life manual. Like, if I want to be an effective entrepreneur, if I want to be an effective teacher or politician or family member – these are the things that I embody and these are the things that I do more <laughs> yeah. like it no, here, no, here, in order to be successful. If I, if, I, if I want to be successful, I have to say I get to. <laughs> That's pretty right. much what they were saying. <laughs> or like someone would come to me and be like, Gingy, you get to be on time. And I'm like, motherfucker, your get to sounds a lot like a have to. <laughs> <laughs> My kids get to take out the trash. My daughter got to move exactly. along today. It's pretty great. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and that's all awesome. If you're using those things to empower yourself, to shift your experience of your reality, all that right. stuff is it's great. About mindset. Yeah, it's about well, a mindset. If though. you're it's using it to manipulate, as soon as you right. start to use it to manipulate, or it's all just mental and you like you understand it, but you don't really get it, that's when shit starts to not work starts to fall apart a little bit and gets dangerous like people coming up to you using this language it can be incredibly manipulative because it it it, it inspires introspection well and and the thing is is also people and again i don't think this is it's not malicious on for most people um because it's a way that we've learned to to make it in the world, it's a way that we cope with the world around us, is manipulation, right? Now, for most of us, it's very subtle, and it's not obtrusive, and it's not, you know, it's, it's little things, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, little, really innocent, even, you can say in some ways. I don't mean manipulation to have, be something disparaging or something negative, because even a woman who puts makeup on is manipulating, that's not you you know you don't really look like that so in reality there's there's a level of manipulation there now is it bad no because 
it's, it's, I mean, in reality, it's, it's playing on our biological urges because it's like in some way stimulating within us the sense of fertility, which we aren't necessarily like, that's not something we're consciously like, you know, when you, if you, if you're out in public and you see a pretty girl, you're not thinking, Ooh, she looks fertile. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, that's, that's not a conscious <laughs> thought you have, but at a biological Speak for yourself. <laughs> yeah. Nick's all but, about the fertile, <laughs> <laughs> but on a biological level, you're drawn to fertility. So big, you know, uh, plump, luscious lips, a flush face, a big butt, big boobs. Like these are indicators for at a biological level of fertility. So it's, you know, it's, now if she's, you know, got, what do they call those spanks? Okay. So, so she may be <laughs> artificially patting her butt, artificially patting her boobs. She's got makeup on. So her, her face isn't really flush. Her lips aren't really, you know, uh, I don't even know the word for it, but you know, whatever you're trying to make your lips look like. Um, but it's, but it's, it's, it's triggering within us. So that's, a, it's on some level, <laughs> well, if she's doing all those things on a, on a pretty big level, that's manipulation, right? Um, so it's not that manipulation is bad. So people also learn to manipulate through language, right? Um, because, you know, you know, the, there, there's a specific person I, I like to use in examples a lot. And, I don't think she maliciously even intends to manipulate, but it's how she's lived her entire life, right? So she's constantly using this language to manipulate. And I don't think it's on a conscious level. I think it's just become a system for her, you know, to manipulate with this, you know, like you were just talking about the get to, right? Yeah. That would be something she would do. She'd be like, oh, well, you get to do that. You know, like, like trying to get you to do something. <laughs> what do you mean? I get to, you know? Um, and I remember one time she used on me. Well, I was, I was trying to create a win-win. I, what mother, how the fuck is this a win-win? Win-win-win for you. <laughs> I don't win in this. <laughs> at a win-win means I win twice. Yeah. <laughs> but she just like, again, she didn't think about the things she said. I, I think, I think it was just like, it was an automatic reaction for her. This, it's just a, it's just jargon. It's just lingo. It's just, it's linguistic fuckery. You know what I mean? She just, she just spits out these words because typically the people she spits them out to don't think, don't, 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 don't feel comfortable being authentic so they, they react to these words in a way of like wanting to be liked, wanting to be right, wanting to look good, right? And, or wanting to live up to some image that they've curated for themselves. So they react accordingly, you know? So to someone else, that Jedi mind trick works. Oh, I was trying to create a win-win. Oh, okay, yeah, great, win-win. And they just mindlessly go along with it. So I no, don't I didn't do even that. think about how I get to win. Exactly. Well, like, they just like I'm thinking, I'm thinking win, back win, to my like, oh, like I, I must win. <laughs> I'm thinking back to my shootout with all those coaches, and when I look at your your three elements, I'm like, okay, as soon as I said I was out, somebody jumped in and questioned my own integrity. So really, what they were doing was selling me a dream of what it would be like if Gingy had perfect integrity. And I'm starting <laughs> to think now. Oh, if I was perfect integrity, not only would I stay in this workshop, but I would also get all the other things in my life that I want. My mind actually went there. 
like of, <laughs> of, of no intentional choice. It just, that's where it went to. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> but back then it's like creating and identifying the, the enemies and the obstacles and what's in the right. way of the dream. I was like, mm-hmm. oh, it's just my own integrity and in saying no to this. And I, I should say yes to this and stay here. And really, there was no value in me staying there to do any of that at all. So like the, the, the having no solution or anything else, um, well, I guess that doesn't really fit in too much with that because realistically, all she wanted was to manipulate. So it's like using the first two things in a, in a way to manipulate somebody into doing whatever the thing is. And that's the goal. That's the solution. Here, you know, we want you to stay. Imagine what your life would be like if you were in integrity. And I know this is something <laughs> that you've heard before. And this is this in the way of you is by quitting this, you're not going to be in integrity. And we don't want that. And so stay. And then everything will be solved. So really, there's right. no solution to my overall integrity. Just stay in this workshop because I want you to. Yeah, and, and then integrity will work itself out. Yep. <laughs> kind of like <laughs> utopia will just That's work exactly. itself out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, well, my integrity is I don't want to deal with this group, so I'm out. That's my right. integrity. Exactly. Yes. And if you were to say that, then the comeback again. This you could go in circles with this, and I've and I've seen, especially people who call themselves life coaches and shit like that because they've been fully indoctrinated by this jargon, by this lingo, by these concepts, and they can twist anything and everything in circles perpetually. (laughs) It can just go on and on and on and on because in that moment, you could very well say, well, yeah, I am being in integrity. I was the only one here on this call on time. None of you were. So I'm maintaining my integrity in choosing out of this group because y'all Ain't in integrity. <laughs> Very easily turn that around on them, you know. As the only person that was in integrity with showing up on time, I am also going to maintain that integrity by not putting myself in a space of unintegrity right. people. <laughs> and the, and but, and again, do you see the correlations here with the critical theorist approach? You exactly. know, you you create that that. Uh, that's that superiority, right? Like I, it's, this is like the, the identity politics kind of uh, twist, right? In that those with certain identities, opinions are more valuable, right? That's, that's one of the, that's one of the the kind of the tenets of, uh, of, 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 of identity politics. So, so I identify as the only one in integrity because, because I was here on time. And so (laughs) if I identify as the only one in integrity, well, then my opinion on integrity is the only one that counts. Exactly. (laughs) Brandon, Brandon, that's integritist and you're violating my safe space. (laughs) (laughs) It's totally integritist. Now I'm an anti-integritist. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but oh, it, it oh, gosh, it's so funny because this is actually what's funny is Gingy and I, when we decided to do this particular topic, this is where our conversation started. Was in 
like the the linguistic fuckery of of personal development programs. It wasn't. It, we were, were we talking about the 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 other one, the the kung fu. Oh, one we were talking about that workout group, that workout cult that I got involved with last year. Because right. the, they, uh, I mean, that really touches more in with like the cult of wokeness, but. Uh, we were talking about before the call that when I was involved with that group, it was like, come on in. The pie in the sky is that you'll be flexible, you'll be strong, you'll be fit. You'll also be able to um, be more successful in all areas of your life because you've got a group of people to support you. And you'll get to learn so much from this like guru master dude and just like amazing. It looked like you know, the best place I could put myself in if I really, truly wanted to take myself on and grow. And so I got involved, got in the group. They were like, share some stuff about you. Tell us what you're doing throughout your day. The more you share, the more that we can help you. And every time I posted something, every time I communicated into the group, somebody would just start firing off like ungrounded assessments, basically. Like, all right, guys, so like today I'm working on this. I'm just not sure if I want to, if I really want to go full time with this thing or maybe part time, they're like, well, Ginger, that's because you don't listen. Like, well, what do you mean? <laughs> well, you don't listen because uh, I know that I don't listen. So that means that you don't listen. And that's why you can't decide on these things. I'm like, wait a minute. I get that I'm here to work, my, work on myself. So there must be something I'm missing. And my mind goes down that track of like, what am I not seeing here? But in hindsight, looking at every time I communicated, looking at all of those little posts and those, those interactions, all it was was talking shit, tearing down, and getting to a point where, like, basically, we're going we're gonna to build you back up. Now that you don't have an idea of who you are, what you stand for, or anything else – now that you've been severely beaten up and pulverized up, then, well, okay, sorry. What I meant to say was that basically there was, there was no way forward. There was just wrong turn, wrong turn, wrong turn, smart rat, or um, any other type of linguistic fuckery that ended up having, like, these are all the problems that are standing in your way. Every single thing that you keep bringing into the group is in your way. And I said, okay, well, how do I move forward? And they would quote a song or they would give me some vague analogy <laughs> or something like that. Like one time I was like, guys, I've been waking up every day for a month at sunrise to do this meditation. And I'm just not sure how long I want to keep on doing this morning sunrise thing. And the guy was like, oh, classic over under. I'm like, oh, lingo. Cool. What does that mean? What is it over under? <laughs> And they, the response I got, the definition was, it's like that Michael Jackson song. You're too high to get over. Yeah, yeah. Too low to get under. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, the fuck? <laughs> what does that have to do? <laughs> yeah, I was like, what does that have to do with my morning meditations? I'm like, I'm too high to get over, too low to get under. I'm stuck in the middle. Yeah, yeah. But are you saying I should maybe meditate six days a week? <laughs> <laughs> Am I going too hard right now? Am I not going hard enough? And so there was no, like, here's the way forward. Just like, oh, dude, you're stuck in the middle. That's what it is. Or the, the one thing I got a lot was you're in your head. Like, like I 
should go somewhere else besides being in my head. And I'm like, okay, where else do I go? Well, not in your head. Okay, where's that? And <laughs> the irony of it is there that idea is coming right from their head. So all this to say that the whole time I was in there, the whole game was just everything was uh, the obstacle. Everything was defined as whatever's in my way of my goals. Even not knowing what my goal was or not you know, knowing what my goal was, because those both happened in there, both of knowing and not knowing the goals were getting in my way. And at some point I was just like, well, these, I'm just here to get beat the hell up and told that I'm wrong and that I'm always in my way until what? And they were like, well, at some point you're going to have some big emotional breakdown. Everybody has it in their first year. And then the team helps build you back up. I was like, you literally want to tear me down and rebuild me the way that you want me to be. And then that you know happened what? to everybody else. Because I've been keeping tabs with, with one person in that group. And uh-huh. that that's the game. And that happens yeah. over and over and over and over. And it is absolutely a form of manipulation. There's no oh, doubt about oh, it's, it. It's, it's right out of Mao. That's the struggle session that they did in communist China. That is how they, again, that's your first step before you go to the gulag. <laughs> first, you have a struggle session. And if you I do have to say, down the way they want you to break down, and then you build up the way they want you to build up, right? This, the re education takes, then mm-hmm. you can become a member of the collective. Otherwise, off to the gulag with you. Um, and, you and you see it, and I don't know if, if it's Mao's invention. Um, because there's something very similar in 1984 where, uh, Winston is, you know, you know, the, the uh, big brother wants him to admit that two plus two is five and right. he's, he's fighting against it because he's like, look, you've taken everything from me. You've taken my family. You've taken my, you know, my possessions. You've taken everything away from me. The one thing I have is my, my, my freedom to recognize that two plus two is four. And so they, they proceed to torture him <laughs> uh, for hours, days on end. And, and finally, you know, he admits, okay, okay, two plus two is five. And they're like, no, like, you're just saying that. And, the, and, they, and their, their point was like, in order to, to you know, be accepted, back in to the in group you must believe that two plus two is five you know it's not enough to just say two plus two is five you must believe two plus two is five and so and that's and that's orwell and that and that may that i believe that predates mal (laughs) but it's it's the same thing mal had these struggle sessions and, and again, it's, Dude, it's almost like a what. signature element of, of, especially of the in-person personal development trainings and things is the, is the breakdown and buildup. Breakdown, breakthrough. Mm-hmm. I, I tell you, dude, the, the, the thing, <laughs> it took absolutely everything that I had in myself to quit that group. And there were times that I would quit and they would, oh yeah, yeah, but you know, like, like if you do, if you, if you are really going to quit, I'm like, dude, I already quit. Like, I'm not even <laughs> well, like, 
I had quit. I had left the group. I had gotten my money back and they're still having a conversation with me. They're like, I know, I know, I know. But like, if you really decide to quit the group, I'm like, <laughs> what else do I need to do to believe that I'm out and that I'm not here anymore? And it didn't just take like, okay, I've got my courage up. Let's do this. I'm just going to go break this off and I have to deal with this conversation. And then I'm scotch free. No, there has been a lingering effect and like a repetition. And I'm, I, I don't talk about this too often, but I am sensitive enough to know when people are thinking about me and not, not like, Oh man, I wish Ginger was here and then moving on. But if I'm like the subject of a conversation, I notice it and I feel it. And that has happened over and over and over over the past year since I left this group and I've checked in, I've been like, so what are they saying about me now with this other person? And <laughs> I, don't, I don't usually go there, but um, basically what I'm saying is that the, the hardest part of that entire process was to get clear with myself on why I was there and what I wanted. And what I was there for didn't exist within that group. And so I was clear I was going to leave. And so I was open to being wrong and had some conversations, but then still left and then got attacked from left and right and left and right. And then disowned and ignored and abandoned by every single other person in that group with the exception of one. And <laughs> even like what, six, seven, eight, nine months later, something like that. I had a, like a reconnection call with one of them and they literally had like a, a notepad sitting on their lap out of the camera shot. And they were taking notes, checking in with me. Like, well, have you actually, you know, achieved Jesus this one Christ. goal that you set? And have you? And I was like, <laughs> like, dude, you're taking notes on our phone call. This isn't even a connection call. And so I had to sit back and like, you know, redirect the conversation back to him over and over. Well, do you, you realize? You over. realize? You realize what's happening there, right? What do you mean? The they're justifying their commitment to this group they're justifying their allegiance their 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 dogma you know what i mean it's yeah, like they become the, the example yeah exactly if i like well look you know if if he can report back that oh well gingy quit the group and he hasn't achieved all these things we thought he should achieve <laughs> you know, like like it's or he's it's, still it's doing the same shit ruining right, his yeah, life doing nothing exactly. and we've all grown so much yeah, yeah. it's it's that, it's and they were uh, doing that while lives. i was in there they were they were doing yeah. that while i was in there too it'd be like well gingy you, you know if you look over here at these people they're doing really really good and like well why because <laughs> all it looks like they're doing from my point of view is just the same shit I'm doing, but agreeing with you. <laughs> right. We're all sharing about ourselves and they're asking questions. And I'm asking questions, but then I'm saying, well, how does that work with this thing over here? <laughs> right. You, you had the gall to question the dogma. It's like everybody was talking about communication is like our number one thing. Communicate, communicate, communicate but nobody listens. And I'm like, and then I got shit for not listening. I'm like, well, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> like one of, one of the members in the group got called out and 
and belittled and criticized. She got put in the hot seat, is what they call it, because oh, they, that's what they call it. They, they call it the hot seat. They, they've got a hot seat. <laughs> We're gonna and everybody gets to a turn, turn in the hot party. seat, dude. Everyone gets a turn yes. in the hot seat. But but she she had her turn in the hot seat because she didn't remind everybody that it was her birthday and nobody remembered her birthday. So she got called out for it. (laughs) It's classic. Was this the gem of Scientology? What? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What kind of workout group was this? Well, it was all awesome until I joined the, the national part of it, which was basically a Facebook group where everyone communicates together and, the workouts, the actual physical exercise bit of it is pretty awesome. It's, it's one of the most like powerful strengthening mobility type of things that I've ever experienced. But the mental and emotional and spiritual side of it was the exact opposite. It was the most disempowering and belittling experience of my life. And I've been through some shit. <laughs> and that was by far... The worst of it. Um, and I was only in there for a month. But yeah, it was, it was, <laughs> I watched the Scientology um, documentary on Netflix, what, six months ago? So, like halfway through after leaving this group. And my mind was just exploding. I was like, oh my God, they do the exact same things. <laughs> and I called Brandon and I was like, Dude, I can't believe this. I've been watching, you know, this thing, and this is exactly what happened in this group. And and holy shit, we have to have a call about cults. <laughs> so we have a whole episode on 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 like uh, global tribalism is what we call it. <laughs> Everyone's need to get into a group and to be part of this group and basically be in this abusive relationship. Yeah, actually, remember that's the one that didn't get recorded because we tried to do it oh, as shit. a podcast and a Telegram call, and it that's right. we had some serious technical difficulties, so we just ended up just switching over to the Telegram call, and none of it got recorded. That's um, right. You guys must have angered Zenu or something, because yeah, we did. <laughs> if you guys need a hand, if you guys if you if you guys need a hand on that, I grew up as one of Jehovah's Witnesses, so I'm really sensitive to this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and they had Leah Remini's uh, Scientology show. She actually had an episode on Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, but yeah, if you guys need, if you guys want to re-record that, let me know. I'll be I'll book the tune in. Let's yeah, do it, man. We, you want to be our guest on it. Yeah, I think we, 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 we it's, it, I feel like it's really kind of part and parcel of every call we do <laughs> because there's like an overarching uh, common thread to a lot of what we talk about, you know, comes back to wokeness. And it's, you know, we actually, we did record the cult of wokeness, which it's, there, it's there's such a religious element to all of it. You know, it's because uh, it's so much of it is is faith based. You know, they don't. The only thing they're missing is a deity, because they've even got their prophets. You know, like the Ibram Kendis, that they've got their prophets. They just they lack a deity, but it is religious by like clearly, because so much of it is taken on faith. Like, find me a coherent argument 
for the abolishment of police. And, and it's all purely based in faith that if we just get rid of them all, everything's going to be awesome. <laughs> go, okay. Uh, just, we're just going to take your word for that. Right. We're just going to trust you on this. So it's, it's very much faith-based, you know? Um, so it's very religious in that sense. And there's dogma, you know, that definitely goes along with it. So it's just, uh, they're just lacking a deity, which is funny because, uh, it's diversity, equity, inclusion, right? Which is DI, which is, you know, <laughs> Latin for God. Um, so they, they, their deity, I guess, is diversity, equity, and, and inclusion. Um, but it's, it, 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 there's such a cultish aspect to it all. And I think in that conversation, we kind of, and again, I, we could definitely do another call on it because we are come from on it was to identify uh, what what makes a cult a cult, right? We did that, and mm-hmm. and we kind of went through Scientology and and really anything and everything, and we, you know, we pulled apart, you know, what's ideology, what's dogma, um, what's faith, you know. I don't know if you got a chance to read that conversation uh, in the in the group that we did, you know, how, you know, not on a voice call, but on the actual, you know, messaging on the, uh, on our group, Gingy, we just did a, uh, what do you call it? A, a conversation on faith. Um, and it, well, it wasn't just faith. It was some distinctions that we drew. Cause it's, it's actually a pretty long conversation between me, Matt and Todd. And we go through, oh, we no, started, I, did, I did see some of that. Yeah. I didn't watch yeah. or I didn't read all of it, but I got a lot of it. Yeah, because I, I mean, to me, that's a very important distinction um, because I feel that like faith is such a significant element, um, regardless of what whether you are religious or what your religion is. Um, f- without uh, an element of faith, um, the, the social structures, your personal life, everything kind of breaks down because without faith, you know, there is no intrinsic value in life. You know, there is no purpose. There is no meaning. Um, and it's funny because Matt always wants to put himself in the position of, uh, what's he call himself? <laughs> Existential nihilist or something. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah, which he isn't, you know what I mean? Like he's really not. I get that he, <laughs> that's how he identifies. That's his, uh, that's his identity. But uh but we, uh, Todd was just kind of like, at first it was, at first it was a conversation between Todd and Matt. And then I jumped in and then it was between me and Matt. And then Todd just kind of was throwing in here and there and Todd, like, cause me and Matt were going in one direction and then Todd kind of brought in this, you know, it, it, it boils element. down to a conversation on morality. And, and he brought in this element of, uh, f- uh faith in love. Right. And he, and, and the, he just kind of threw that out there as a phrase is like, this is the basis of our morality. I'm like, and he's, and he, he, he kept coming from this position that, that philosophy is useless, you know? And I'm like, if you want to have a conversation about faith and love, the only way you can have any kind of a meaningful conversation and create any kind of value is through philosophy. And I broke down like, look, you can't like, I get that there are 
philosophies, right? Like people call, like there is existentialism and is a philosophy, but philosophy is a method, just like science is a method. And if you want to have a meaningful conversation about anything, whether it's objective or subjective, it's philosophical. And you can't just throw a phrase out there like faith and love and say, oh, that's the basis of morality. <laughs> what the fuck does that mean? Like for one, what do you mean by love? You know, like, yeah, we all have a sense of what love is. We all have an experiential aspect of love that we've had, but you can't just throw that phrase out there like it has some significant meaning to everyone and that, oh, okay, yeah, that's all you had to say. Now we can all get along. <laughs> like, no, that doesn't work. And so I try, it's funny because I put it out there. So like after I was done with Matt and, and our morality conversation, I kind of chimed in on Todd and I'm like, okay, let's have that conversation about like, can faith in love be a basis for a, a method of morality? And, and, you know, so I kind of broke down my, my position on it because again, I'm, I, I very do very much do believe that faith is, a, is an important and significant aspect and could serve as a basis for a, a method of morality. And, <laughs> instead of, and you know how Matt is, Matt, Matt chimes right in. So it became, a, and then it turns into a conversation <laughs> between me and Matt again um, on faith and love. But I kind of I brought Matt from a place of being, because Matt was kind of in this mindset that the only thing valuable is objective. You know what I mean? Like that was kind of his, because I like right. in my response to Todd, I was like, look, there is nothing objective about faith or love, but to presume that you can only have, you know, that only objective things are provable or that philosophy can only deal with objective things. That's just a misunderstanding of philosophy. Like there's a huge part of philosophy and the method of philosophy that is subjective. In fact, it's the only way to deal with the subjective is through philosophy. Like you want to have a conversation about consciousness, science hits the wall. <laughs> you know what I mean? See, you can't hit, you can't really have very much of a conversation about consciousness in science. You know, you can, I mean, you could go into some quantum aspects and like, but it, you hit the wall very quickly and you don't really come to any kind of conclusions or anything. Like I, it's even hard to form theories out of it. Um, from a scientific, with the scientific method, but with philosophy, you can you could take that com that conversation on on consciousness much further. Um, so then I and th but then finally at the end, like at me and Matt, actually, I feel like that conversation like went somewhere. For me, it was very valuable um, to to explain from a place of of for for one for what to me what faith is, how it you know how it is, why it's significant, how it is applied, um, what it creates or what it can create for the individual and for a community. Um, and so I'd like, for me, it was a powerful conversation and probably it was, it was significantly powerful because it was with Matt, because he always approaches everything as devil's advocate, as the cynic. Um, mm -hmm. So, so it, he, he's definitely a great, uh, discussion partner when you're seeking to like really flesh something out, you know, to like 
real, let me really understand what I think. I think, I think, you know, <laughs> like, like, and so he's a, he's a great kind of, uh, a board to bounce things off of because he's going to twist and turn and, you know, uh, question everything. My philosophy of faith. So faith is an unyielding trust in or of something that does not require an authoritative source or a particular outcome to distinguish from belief in many religious philosophies, faith, which is belief without evidence implies or overtly connects the belief to an authoritative source and a prescribed outcome, i.e. live a righteous life and spend the rest of eternity in heaven because God and his vicars say so. My faith in living my life by my principles has no authority to dictate these principles and no guarantee of an outcome for living by my principles. Needing the guaranteed outcome or believing in the guaranteed outcome is also a lack of faith. At that point, your choice of principles you live by is either driven by fear of a consequence or the promise of a reward, a lack of faith. My faith's unyielding nature does not mean that the principles are statutory. They can be fluid and dynamic based on my experience and wisdom. If a principle I had faith in begins to hurt myself or others, I may let it go and my faith may shift to new principles. This is the gist of my philosophy of faith. I'm open to critiques mm. and discussion. So that's kind of, that's like the tail end of the conversation. Like I said, it doesn't, doesn't really go into our, our morality, which I, I think would be a great conversation as well, because I, because, uh, and it's actually a good, it's definitely a good fit, the faith and morality, because, um, that's another thing that's threatening our culture right now and why it's why the left have adopted this. Oh, we're for science, even though they're clearly not for science. (laughs) Most uh, they take the most unscientific approach to everything, but they claim to be for science. And this is the reason because they're really it's, it's the dichotomy of science and religion. They're against religion because of the morals and ethics. Mm. So in order to destroy a culture, you must destroy the underlying values, right? The, the morals of that society. And so the really, it's an attack on religion. That's why they claim to be for science because they and look that's at why they use dichotomy. That's why they use the phrase, I believe in science. Yes. Not exactly. like science exists, but the, the, I always wondered about that. Like the belief in science, I'm like, you guys are just trying to make it into a religion. Boom. Right. And I've even said for years that science operates more like a religion. People are like, you know, Newton's third law is immutable. I'm believing that and it's infallible. And it's like a blind faith in um, a working theory, basically. And there was no room for, you know, growth or expansion or more possibilities. And now we're actually seeing it, you know, stuck in people's grass. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and again, and that's actually a, a relatively modern way of even approaching science. Cause a lot of these, uh, we call them the forefathers of our modern scientific methods and scientific law. Most of these guys were men of faith, <laughs> like even Galileo, like, yeah. 
Galileo was a man of faith. Sir Francis Bacon was a man of faith. Uh, Isaac, Newton. Isaac Newton was a man of faith. You know, these were these were religious people. They were men of faith. And so it's interesting to me that now it's an either or. Uh, 